Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. I have written a children's book, which I'm very proud of, and I'm going to be telling you more about in a while. It's called Sophia Loves Tortillas. It's all about gratitude. It's bilingual. and Ultimately about our saying thank you to people around us and respecting and loving and appreciating the people around us who bring us food and everything, that no one is alone. No one is self-made. I did not make myself. And ultimately, to be thankful and grateful to the creator of us all, and the woman who's in today's podcast, the purple lady by the bay, she, uh, she lives that. I think you'll enjoy hearing her. Love is the answer in this world. What is the sound of one man listening? This is Man Listening, a fresh podcast featuring the stories of strong women who bounce back. Man Listening, because every woman deserves to be heard. Hi there, I'm Stuart Watson, and welcome to Man Listening. Um, I met this woman through her daughter, Mar, who's a friend of mine, who's an adoptee and also very active in recovery. And... um, she is an amazing, just an amazing woman, and has, after losing a daughter, losing a brother, you know, losing house, losing, she became very active in end-of-life issues and helping people navigate that terrain. And she did so with such utter joy, which she exemplified with the color purple. So purple car, purple dress, purple house, purple everything. So she became known as the Purple Lady, and because she lives on the other side of the bay from San Francisco, near Tiburon, California, uh, she calls herself the Purple Lady by the Bay. She's been a wonderful uh, singer and musician and also wrote a children's book. Um, so Barbara Meislin, the Purple Lady by the Bay. Where were you born? Good old Newark, New Jersey. Hospital or home? In a great big hospital, I guess. I, I don't remember that too well. <laughs> Did your mother tell you anything about her pregnancy, labor, or delivery with you? Yes, she told me that, um... One word of wisdom. She said, you know why babies come out screaming? She said, because it's a dangerous world and they know it. And then she added, I came out like sucking my thumb and being very content. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess that was a good beginning. And I had an extraordinary mother. Oh, that's lovely. For her, where were you in the birth order? You were number what of how many? Number two. Uh, number two of two. Oh, okay. Sister, brother? 
brother, an older brother. Um, is he still with us? No, my brother, my very beautiful brother died at 55 of melanoma. Oh my word. Yeah. Were you all close? Yes, I lived, well, we were close because we were raised by a single parent. And uh, my mother worked from the time I was five on. And I was the younger of the two, but sort of a big sister in a way. Uh, that sounds kind of strange, but without a man in the house, uh, there was a lot of feminine energy for a boy. I lived with my brother for the last two years of his life, trying to help him find some kind of support and some kind of cure of which there was none. He died in 88. So uh, I was very close to my brother and literally very close to my brother. I went back to New Jersey and lived with him for the last two years. So that's um, extraordinary. Well, it, he was he was a very unusual, beautiful man, an ice skater. Hopefully he wanted to be a professional ice skater, but he was an engineer uh, by profession and um, a computer, a teacher, a beautiful musician, an award-winning dancer, and just a gorgeous soul. So um, it was a very uh, transformative time in my life to, to live with him so directly every day. And uh, being cross country and trying to find hospitals and protocols that would help him. And then just being by him, it was a very teaching time of my life and a very, what shall I say? I think of human beings as being cumulative. So I think of everything that had come before in my life helped me to sustain him and to su sustain myself and my family during that experience. And so, so involved in hospice and my whole family has been so involved in hospice since that time. But I had been involved in uh, issues involving a death and dying for a very long time. I lost my firstborn, uh, little lady Lori, when she was seven, uh, very dramatically. And um, I was a young mother and that put me on a path uh, that prepared me perhaps in however destiny works to be useful and whatever you call courageous and um, well assigned to being my brother's other hand. May I ask, how did Lori die? Lori was a beautiful little girl <clears throat> in perfect health. We had a beautiful day of swimming and jumping off diving boards and whatever on that Saturday. And we came home and uh, my former husband, her daddy, uh, and I went out to dinner that night, got a call and from the babysitter saying, maybe you should come home. Lori doesn't seem to feel very well. And uh, she didn't feel very well. She was having trouble breathing. I called the doctor. Uh, said keep an eye on her, prop her up with pillows. In the morning she was much worse, called the hospital. They said, please get her in right away. And at 520 that day she died. Wow, do they know what caused that? It was a very rare disease called Haemophilus influenza for which there was no cure at that time. Her lungs just were saturated and uh, it worked very quickly, there was nothing that they could do. 
So that was the beginning of a, an in-depth in journey as, as deep as you could go in trying to understand in this world how something like that could happen to such a beautiful, innocent child. When she was trying to breathe and they did a trach for her to support her, I got in bed with her to try to just comfort her before they were going to take her in for surgery. I was frightened for her and she looked at me in the most beautiful, peaceful of ways. And she said to me the last words in her life, which were, thank you, mama. Those are the last two words that child said. And those words have colored the rest of my life. When a child at that time, knowing I think she knew she was saying the last words, she wanted to comfort me, offer gratitude to me for her little life. And that has colored everything I have done since then. She was a very unusual little girl. I'll give you a, a quick story about Lori. She was seven, as I said, and uh, in her school, there was a little girl who uh, no one seemed to want to play with. And people said, uh, you know, I said, why don't people want to play with her, honey? And she said, they say she has cooties or they say bad things about her. And one day at the door, Lori comes home from school and who is with her but this little girl. And uh, afterwards I said to her, honey, what, what made you bring her home with you? She said, mama, somebody has to play with her. Now that's a seven-year-old child that had an understanding so beyond uh, what many of us at 99 might have in terms of wisdom. But it started me on a journey of working with other people who'd lost children. And uh, I was a singer. I sang. I sent you some music, so I think you know I'm telling you the truth. <laughs> um, and I started to recover by just singing to the dark walls. I just sang myself back to life. And when I found energy and a presence of mind and heart to do so, I realized that I had to start singing for other people. If it could sing me back to life, maybe it would help other people, other women, uh, other families, other whatever. So I just started, I got very involved with music. I started singing for Compassion, uh, Compassionate Friends, which is an organization that uh, supports people who've lost children. So that was one direct line out of my own experience of healing to offer it to other people through music. I became involved with hospice work back here, not directly uh, as a hospice worker, but lending them support, you know, whatever I could do financially for them. There were just many, many roads that I took. Uh, one of them, I think, which had perhaps the deepest influence on me because I was very involved and interested in politics in the Middle East. And what was going on at that time were buses being blown up with children uh, in Israel with um, 
children being taught to carry guns before they even knew uh, who they were to, to kill the enemy. And knowing the pain of losing a child, I found it unbearable to think of somewhere in this world, there are children being taught to kill each other and hate each other. So I became very involved with that area uh, politically. I, just very serendipitous things happened that took me in different directions. And I learned of a woman who was very involved in peace dialogue. I read about her, I wrote her, and she invited me to one of the peace dialogue meetings. And she put me on as a mentor to an organization called Neve Shalom Vahat Al Salam, which means Oasis of Peace in Hebrew and in Arabic. I became very interested in their work, what they did. It was a village, a peace village, where families had devoted their lives to living there. They built their homes there together. There were at that time maybe 40, 50 families who devoted their lives to showing that we can live together in peace. And they had um, an elementary school, which was bilingual and cultural. And they raised their children from the very beginning to speak Hebrew and Arabic. I was very taken with this concept. And it, it addressed the pain of feeling that children were purposely, and human beings were purposely hurting other children. So that filled a great need for me. And so I got very involved with the village and I decided as um, an honoring and memorial to little Lori that I would become involved in building a playground in that village. And um, I live on a basis of assignment, Stuart. They come to me in what I call the twilight zone. I'm a meditator. So after I meditate and before I come back to this world, uh, sometimes I just have this, these thoughts of what's going on in my heart and in the world and what I need to do about it. And that was one of my twilight thoughts. I have to get involved in doing this. If Lori were here and Lori grew into a beautiful young adult, that's where she would have put her energy, her time, and her love. Like when she brought this little girl home from school because someone had to play with her. My loving partner, also a steward, I must say, uh, Stuart Kaplan, who's accompanied me in my journey in life for the last 32 years. Uh, he helped me uh, go to this village. We decided after the playground was established and they kept saying, when are you coming, Purple Lady? When are you going to come and visit this? We finally went. And uh, I was a songwriter at that time. I had a song out in the world called, No One Can Ever Steal Your Rainbow. And I sent it to the village and the children learned it in Hebrew and in Arabic. And uh, when we went there and they dedicated the playground, they, here were these beautiful children with rainbow streamers, twirling, dancing, singing, uh, and singing, no one can ever steal your rainbow. No one can ever steal your rainbow. No one can ever take it away. No one can ever steal your rainbow when it's there in your heart. It's there to stay. And uh, that was the chorus, the hit part of it. And I used that lyric as the text for the book. And uh, I, Children's book. Yes, 
a children's book a la Shel Silverstein because Shel Silverstein is an adult author as far as I'm concerned. And that's how that book turned out and beautifully illustrated by Helen Weber who had lost two of her children and could put her heart totally into that book. It was translated into Hebrew and Arabic in Israel. Uh, Sesame Street or the equivalent of it there had the song translated into Hebrew and Arabic. And then this book went on Amazon and started selling all over the place. And there's so many ways that this little life of mine has journeyed as a result of that core experience of loss so early in my life. Um, what do you think happens when we die, when human beings die? Uh, I, like everyone else, if we will be honest, has only projections about this. Uh, I have said earlier that I think everything in life is cumulative. So in a sense, I think all of life is cumulative. Cumulative, that's a big word. <laughs> and that nothing is wasted. So my plan is have my ashes placed, uh, some of them in a grave with Lori, some of them in the ocean with my sweetheart, and the rest will go to spirit. And where spirit resides, I don't know, but I know this, this isn't the full story. I can't give you more information than that because I don't have it. But uh, it's enough for me to believe that there's a purpose for all of us and a purpose for this universe. And as much as we are doing to destroy it, we are doing to help it survive at this very radical point in time. So do you believe the forces of, of good are sort of up to the task? Well, this is a rather dramatic thing to say. I've been very, very involved with work that involves nuclear weapons, an organization called Plowshares. Uh, and I lend them a lot of support. My approach to life, because I've had some hard things happen. Everyone's had hard things, but I've had a few. Uh, my thought about that is if the accept or look at what is the consummate thing that can happen in life, the worst thing. The worst thing that can happen is that we destroy each other. It's a possibility with what's going on now with Putin and what the near accidents that happened with nuclear weapons. Many people don't even want to look at that place and are not even aware of it until now. There's a little box that carries around. And if that person is uh, not of right mind, uh, or makes a bad decision, that could happen. So what do I do with that thought as I have done with many thoughts in my life? Take it to that extreme and say, well, where are you with that purple lady? My belief is that if that happens, there will be some of us who survive. There will be some of us who will learn from that consummate lesson that war is not the answer. Love is the answer in this world. And they will survive they will start at the experiment, the experiment of compassion and living with love all over again. That's my deepest belief. Do you have a particular spiritual practice? Well, I'm a meditator, as I say, and uh, that was TM a long time ago. I've been a meditator for, well, I don't know, 50 years, 40 years. Uh, that's 
my deep spiritual practice. And it has evolved into a practice where um, I not only quiet my mind and try to remove all uh, the chatter in my brain, but when I do that, I spend time with uh, prayers of healing and gratitude. I, my time gets longer and longer <laughs> with this practice because there seem to be more people in my life who need healing. And like how long? How long each day? Usually an hour, usually an hour. And um, I kind of meditate when I walk. Uh, I meditate when I listen to music, but that's my active clearing of the mind. And when, when you pray, what does it sound like? It sounds like St. Francis's prayer. Do you know St. Francis's prayer? Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where is their hatred? Let me so love. Where I've caused injury, pardon. Where there's doubt, faith, despair, hope, darkness, light, and sadness, joy. Divine Master, grant me. That's the prayer that I start with. Well, it was extraordinary for me, uh, coming from a Judaic background, to find that prayer in my former husband's father's belongings when we were undoing his house after he passed away. And I read that, and uh, it was. It was so authentic to me. It was so authentic to leading uh, a good life and to all the things I'd learned from Jerry Jampolsky, forgiveness, uh, trying to understand where the other human being comes from rather than where you come from always. And I've tried to live that in all kinds of, that's my guiding star of those words that I forget try to understand where the other person is coming from rather than understand me. Try to love them even though they don't love me. And it's a very clear prayer. So I can use that almost as my textbook <laughs> for life. And I try to live that prayer every day. And it says that we are called upon to love even if we ourselves are being held in contempt or in hate that we are called upon not to view love as any kind of transaction or any sort of conditional, but to be constant, to have that sort of um, divine love, which is not contingent upon the other, um, but rather is a constant outflow, uh, a, a practice. That outflow can come from a Buddhist, from a Muslim, from a person of Jewish faith, or a humanist who doesn't pray to any particular or doesn't think that there's any particular guiding force uh, outside of the human force and can just behave as a beautiful human being without the thought of a reward. The reward is to be a good human being. So, you know, that it doesn't have to be a religious thing at all, uh, you know, or called a religious prayer. It is a very religious prayer in terms of source, but in terms of sourcing, it's there for everyone of any kind of faith of goodwill. And goodwill would save this world. <laughs> goodwill. Um, I want to go back to um, grieving. Uh, grieving, you know, is a lifelong process. Um, how are you able to help 
parents? One of the most important things I have found is to be a listener. Advice, uh, you know, I had people giving me advice when Lori died, you know, God wanted her, this, uh, they told me all kinds of things. They were not, those were really not welcome pieces of advice. And that was the best they could do. So I could understand that and I could forgive and understand their willingness or wanting to be helpful. And it really was not helpful. What could I do? I sing with the, the Threshold Choir. Do you know the Threshold Choir at all? You were explaining it to me, but what is it again? It's an international group. It was started by Kate Munger, who lives here in California. Uh, and we bring music bedside to people who are in hospice care, who are terminally ill. Uh, we bring it to um, hospitals like Kaiser. We go and sing bedside for people who are ill. We sing bedside for memorial, you know, memorial services for people who have passed and parents of people who've lost children through uh, taking their own lives or other way. Music is a great healer that it doesn't preach. Uh, when, I was a, when I was a singer, I remember one night singing at the one o'clock last set uh, and I was singing in French. Uh, I was a French teacher at one time and I was doing a set in French. And I remember one person in the audience coming up to me and saying, I, I didn't understand a word that you said because I was singing in French, but I could felt, could feel everything that you were saying. And he was almost teary. Whatever it was that he had felt was helpful to him. So when I've done memorial services, sometimes we've taken the name of the child or the person, incorporated it into a standard song or some way or a standard, a known song and replaced it with the name um, of, that, of that soul. Uh, so tangibly, music is one thing, listening, uh, a card that doesn't have any judgment, just that says, I offer you my love, or doing things, not just saying, what can I do? Come over to a door, I might not do this, but others whom I'm involved with would do this. Bring a meal over to someone when they just can't even figure out how to eat or prepare anything themselves. Do physical things that would help them drive them somewhere if that need be done. Most of all, um, you can assure, and this is, you can assure them just by your example that somehow you live through it and you return to life. And my suggestion in various ways in my own life has been to do something that expresses the essence of that human being and turn it into something tangible. The playground was a way that I healed. That was- now which, which playground was this? Playground in Israel. The one that Little Lady Lori- Oh, I see, yes. Purple, Little Lady Lori's purple playground of friendship. I see that sign there, children are playing there. Uh, I became very involved in my mother uh, after, right after Lori died, established um, a scholarship fund in her memory. She wanted to be a dancer. Every time we go to 
the dance companies that we support. Someone's dancing for Lori. And I feel that way. And I'm joyous about it. And I connect with people, young people who received some scholarships, some help to continue their dancing studies. And I feel I'm part of that and Lori's part of that. I've been in, there's a little gazebo, I was just there that we dedicated here in our community. Uh, and it has a plaque on the ground that was engraved. It's a little white gazebo right on the waterfront. And engraved in the ground is child of sunlight, child of moonlight, child of starlight grace, shine your little light of love on all who find this place. It's a little gazebo with seats in it. And I have more people come up to me in my little town who say, are you the purple lady? I sit in your gazebo. There's a little picture of Lori painted in the ceiling. And people look up there and see this beautiful little face with her bright, shiny blue eyes. And um, I dedicated her eyes after she died to someone who would see with her eyes. These are things that people do, tangible things you can do that have that spirit live for long as you do and beyond when you are here. Uh, the scholarships for dance, the little gazebo, when my brother passed away, uh, I used to sit with my brother on a swing in New Jersey, a little swing by the water while he was healing or ailing and healing in his heart. And when he passed away, I had a little swing bench created here in town where people sit and swing. And right next to it is a rock with a purple engraving that says, a swing, the sea, my brother and me forever loved the purple lady. These are 10, and they don't have to be big things. These aren't dedicating hospitals or, or buildings or, they can be small things, but they create, they extract the essence of someone who was dearly loved. I've seen through uh, the organization that I've worked with Compassion and Choices, which is uh, Compassion and Friends, excuse me, Compassion and Choices is another organization, Compassion and Friends, people who've done the most remarkable work who've lost children, some of them through taking their own lives, we're here and here only to learn and from what we learn, to love others and to teach others what we have learned. And not with a big, strong, you should, but by example. And uh, when I did that little gazebo, uh, Compassionate Friends decided to do another whole project for the whole county that was a place where people could come people who'd lost their children. Now, one of the beautiful things that had just came to me yesterday in a conversation with my daughter, my darling Marla, Mar, who said to me, and this is so extraordinarily appropriate, you know, mom, uh, mama, she calls me mama, you know, uh, I am very clear now with all the volunteer work that she's done with addiction, I'm very clear now that my path has something to do with people who have taken their own lives. Now, she said this to me yesterday, Stuart. So 
in the magical way that life works, somehow Marla has gotten these seeds of healing and finding a very specific place where she will be enormously useful. She's had some of those losses in her life with suicides. How did you make the decision to bring Mar into your life, to adopt her? Oh, I was extraordinarily close to my mother. My mother was assistant to the Dean of Bellevue Medical University without degrees. So when uh, I had such a close relationship with my mother, she was such an extraordinary woman and such a beautiful friend to me. I could not picture going through my life without having a daughter. And I couldn't guarantee biologically that I would reproduce a girl. And although I love men, uh, I wanted to have a little girl. I wanted to have a big girl and I wanted to have a best girlfriend. And so I adopted my beautiful mom. And she was two months old when she came into my life. And I think you are familiar with adoption stories. So you can certainly um, align your heart and your thoughts with what I'm telling you. And she has been a beautiful friend in my life. Marla is an exceptional woman. Both of my children are beautiful human beings in this world. And my grandchildren are starting to learn from their parents how to do good in the world. My granddaughter is extremely involved in environmental issues, um, working with getting cars to change to electric. You know, I mean, she's, She's a very, very bright gal, um, advanced degrees in environmental studies and whatever. So, you know, these relationships, uh, you do things by example, not by just talking. How did you become the purple lady? Well, that's, that's a wonderful story. Mama, my beautiful Mumsy, I called her Mumsy, had a very difficult life. She was raising two children on her own from the time I was five. We moved from Newark, New Jersey to the Bronx uh, in with an aunt because we couldn't afford to do anything else. And my aunt's husband was in the service in the Aleutian Islands somewhere. So she had an extra room or two. My mother started working immediately. I was one of those uh, classic, uh, what do they call them, key kids latchkey kids. My, uh, I communicated with my mother by phone several times a day while she was working. Honey, are you home? Did you lock the door? I want you to start this for dinner. I mean, this is a little girl. I learned to be independent from the time I was five on, really, with no complaints. My mother, having had such a difficult time, never complained. She was a very beautiful woman physically, and she was a hat person. I used to love to go with my mother to the automat for dinner and then go to Macy's and we would try on hats. I would say, mama, try this one on, <gasps> try this one. And one day she came home with a hat box. She opened it up. In there was the most beautiful purple velvet hat you ever saw in your life. She put that on her head and in the box was a muff. Maybe, maybe some of your listeners don't know what a muff is. It's a purse that you put both of your hands in like in Dr. Zhivago. And um, she stood there with that purple hat and that purple muff. And if I ever had a moment of joy, 
seeing my mother so beautiful and so happy and so rewarded by someone who must have cared a lot about her left me with a purple permanent imprint. So my association with purple is joy. And if you've read the book, The Color Purple, which several people sent to me, I tried to find out what is she, why is it purple for her? And I underlined in that story where it said, the color purple was joy. And I have what I call the 11th commandment in life. What is the 11th commandment? Thou shalt be joyous. And in parentheses is no matter what. It's easy to be joyous if life's going straight. It was hard to be joyous when my house burned down. Uh, 2009, I stood outside of my house and watched it go up in flames. My beautiful home of 43 years. And when newspaper men were all around because it was a huge fire that you could see from far away and asked me, how could you just stand there and look so composed? I said, well, my cousin who was with me visiting is not inside. She's alive and she's next to me. I'm alive and outside. When you've lost a child, you don't lose anything else that matters. I am alive. Everything else can be replaced. So when I say no matter what, I take that story into your heart to say that at such a moment, all I could think of was, I'm alive. My children will not have to live through my expiring through a fire. That was a thought. Do you have a living will? Yes, I have every kind of anything that you can ask for. And I have been totally involved with compassion and choices. Do you know compassion and choices? I do not, sorry. That's an organization I've been involved with since its inception, maybe 20 years ago. Started in Oregon. I bet you, you do know it and you don't know that you know it. It gives a human being who is terminally ill the right to die with dignity. You may ask your doctor after two doctors have uh, ascertain that you are terminally ill and you are suffering, that you have the right to request medication to end your life with dignity, not all plugged up and in your own home, if that's where you choose to be, with your family around you at a designated time. Uh, my brother died under very difficult circumstances. He suffered enormously. His lady had died two years before of breast cancer at 39, all plugged up, suffering till the very last moment. I was determined that no one was going to die that way. If I could do anything about it, as I've said to you, Stuart, do something. That was my promise in my heart to my brother. I will work as till the very last day that I'm here that no one will suffer the way that you did. And Compassion and Choices has filled that need for me because it makes that available to someone who wants to have that available to them. It imposes nothing on anyone. And that law was going to sunset here in California. And I became very involved with making sure that it did not sunset and that it was reinstated. And now that law is in 11, 11 states in the country and spreading because people feel they have that right. And just yesterday, 
I reset my pink form on my refrigerator that says, don't do any pressure on me to, to resuscitate me. I'm a, I'm a slender little gal and I have very delicate ribs and I've just recovered from a bruised or broken rib that I did in exercising. And I've had it happen two or three times to me. My doctor, who is a very bright and caring person and very uh, conscious of these issues said to me, you need to put that on your refrigerator or in a very uh, visible place, because if they do that kind of resuscitation on you, you'll end up with broken ribs, you'll probably end up with pneumonia, and you'll have a very sad exit from the world. And I took that straight to the straight to the refrigerator, <laughs> filled out that form and put it out there. People are so afraid of facing what is a truth, no matter what anyone wants to say, we have no one here who has gotten out of here alive. We are all going to exit. Uh, whatever our belief is in terms of what happens afterward is another story. But to not take care of what, how you exit is irresponsible to the rest of your family and causes a lot of pain for those around you who remain, who may not know what you want or who argue about what you want and argue with each other about what you want. And I think it's irresponsible to not do what you've just talked about. I've done everything and I've done that a long time ago. And I've asked everyone around me that I know, my other half, my sweetheart, my former husband, everybody that I care about to make sure that they've taken care of those things. I had a very loving neighbor who was extremely religious in the purest sense. She practiced every day, she went to church every day, and um, she was very involved with my mother. She did, she lost her mother, and I've mentioned my mother was everybody's mother. My mother became her surrogate mother. My mother went through a tremendous amount of pain at the end of her life. She had homophilus, not homophilus, she had the aftermath of shingles, post-herpetic neuralgia. Are you familiar with that at all? No, it sounds very painful. She was in acute pain for five years. From the time she was 85 until she died at 90, my mother was in constant pain with an attitude that no one would believe. If everyone were anyone were ever an angel, it was my mother. But my neighbor, in her religious belief, uh, when I asked her about my mother's pain and suffering, uh, and my feelings about the, their, she had the right to be relieved from that pain if she chose to, which she never chose to. She said, well, Jesus suffered for us. We must all suffer for Jesus. Well, I could not accept that kind of statement. I said to her, if you were at the end of your life and that's how you felt, I would do anything to support you through the end of your life with whatever suffering you have but you or no one has the right to impose upon my mother or anyone else suffering in the name of Jesus. And frankly, I don't think Jesus would have wanted anyone to do that either. So, I mean, that's how we've gotten so distorted with um, drugs or drugs that help. Some of the drugs are helping epilepsy, I understand. And uh, if that helps someone with epilepsy at a time when uh, some drugs were considered, or maybe still are considered illegal. They help people with with their traumas. So I don't know. Compassion is 
is the fountain, is where every, from everything flows from compassion. So you can take a walk and you can see across the bay, right? You can see the city, you can see Angel Island, you could see clear across to Richmond, couldn't you? I, I can. It's quite, I live in a very lovely little corner of the world. Uh, I love flowers. I have all kinds of purple flowers around and I have water around. I've always loved water. Uh, I used a swimmer. I used to swim a hundred laps a day at a certain time in my life. Uh, and water has just always given me a feeling of movement and uh, the eternal force of life. I don't know, water is something that I communicate with. So I'm very lucky to be around in water. And uh, we have a little place out at Muir Beach, if you're at all familiar with Muir Beach, near Muir Woods with the gorgeous redwood trees. We have a little, little Shangri-La out there where we go most weekends to hide away. Um, my, my other half uh, has this little place and uh, it's a place of great joy during all during COVID. We were so blessed to be able to have ravens for our friends and trees for our friends and uh, a love of life for our friends. And I have a wonderful life partner. So that's a bottom line. <laughs> if we get struck by lightning today, and the only thing that survives is this recording, what is your legacy? What is my legacy? Hmm. Forgive, let live, have humor and whimsy in your life, love with all your heart, and thou shalt be joyous no matter what. That's beautiful. Do you want a service of some kind, like a memorial? You know, Stuart, I'm toying with that. I have originally written out everything, including the music that I wanted to be sung. Um, and I don't know why, but I'm reviewing that in my life, whether I just want to say, put on a purple something and remember me. And if you want to make a donation, uh, make it to the Peace Village or, you know, something like that. I don't know. I don't know what would be most healing for my family. And maybe that needs a little bit of discussion with Mar and my son and my sweetheart, uh, whether they would feel deprived of that. I've, I mean, I've sung so many memorial services for other people. It's kind of funny to be saying that. But uh, you're asking me some interesting questions because that one I'm, I'm mulling. That's my muller. <laughs> Most of what I had asked for was the beginning, uh, say St. Francis's prayer. At the end, say St. Francis's prayer. And then sing the rose. Do you know the song, The Rose? Yes. Well, that was written by Amanda McBroom, who was wonderful enough to write the music for Carvings in the Canyon, the album that I sent you. Very gracious to do that, a beautiful woman and a gorgeous singer. I wanted the rose. If you really listen to the words to that song, that could be a national anthem. Just remember in the winter far beneath the bitter snows lies the seeds that with the sun's love in the spring becomes the rose. Gorgeous. And from wherever my mother's spirit is, she would send down a purple blessing. <laughs> Thank you for making time, Purple Lady by the Bay. Bless you for the work that you do. 
and for the sharings that you have and the focus of your sharings, overcoming, you know, overcoming loss, overcoming whatever you have to overcome. And we all have things to overcome, but we help each other do it. And that's what's important. Thank you for your strength. What I really want to do is visit Barbara <laughs> out in California, and I need a good excuse to get out there. I think I have uh, a job in uh, a little job in Fresno, fingers crossed. And so I hope to see you, Barbara. Thank you for making time. Man Listening is a production of Unmediated LLC in cooperation with the Queen City Podcast Network and Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative and Rachel Clapp Miller are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. Please go to our Patreon page. You'll find us at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening, one word, no spaces. We hope you'll join us by becoming a member. A small investment can raise up the conversation. If you want exclusive member merch, like a t-shirt, we can arrange that too. Many, many thanks. Much gratitude to you and all those like you who have supported this podcast from the very beginning. My thanks. Don't forget to support us at Patreon. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks. Thanks.